All right, thank you for that reminder. I want to say a hearty thank you for the wonderful meals that we've enjoyed last night with the soup, today with the chicken. You know, those were the biggest pieces of chicken I think I've ever eaten. Actually, I take that back. I did eat big, enormous pieces of chicken like that one other time. And that was this summer when I was invited to Faith Baptist Church to preach for their homecoming service. They served at their lunch enormous pieces of chicken also. So I am through deductive reasoning concluding that Pastor Daniels is raising chickens in his backyard, pumping them full of steroids, and these chickens are as big as beach balls. But that was delicious. I am so thankful for that. You folks are gracious hosts here at Community Baptist as well as at Faith Baptist. On the table right here in the lobby, I do have the two books I've written thus far, and I just want to comment briefly about those. The first book I wrote is called The End of the Pilgrimage, Your Judgment Seat Verdict and How It Determines Your Place in His Kingdom. This, to summarize, would be a Doctrine of Rewards 101. This is written to the average church member. And so if you want instruction in rewards, what we've been talking about this week, but at a very rudimentary level or introductory level, I would say this book uh, handles that subject. So these are available on the table in the back. Then I wrote a second book called Christ Magnified, Glorifying Jesus by Your Life. And the reason why I wrote this book is because people would come to me and they'd say, I get the word of the kingdom teaching that you wrote in book one, but how in the world can I live in a way that will please the Lord so that I can hear well done at the judgment seat? So I wrote book two, which is how to glorify Jesus by your life. It gives the principles for living victoriously as a child of God so that you can hear well done at the judgment seat. And if you will live victoriously according to these biblical principles, uh, then you will glorify Jesus by your life. So anyway, those two books are available. I have written a third book, but it's not quite finished yet as far as the printing and final editorial uh, changes are coming. It is called Keys for Inheriting the Kingdom, Unlocking the Parables of Jesus. What I've done is I've gone through all the parables in the Synoptic Gospels, because that's the only place you find parables, and I have concluded that none of them have anything to do with soteriology, salvation from eternal condemnation, though they're frequently preached that way. They all deal with matters of sanctification and reward. So that book will be available shortly, and I'm offering this to you at the conference. If anyone would like to purchase one here at the conference, pay for it here, give me your name and address, I will ship it to you free of charge as soon as it comes out, and it'll be about a month or less. So some folks have already done that. You're welcome to do that if you want, or you can just wait till it comes out. But I think that book will be The Doctrine of Rewards 201. Now, if you want graduate-level stuff, go down to Marty's table, and uh, Lewis has some stuff on his table, Judy as well. But anyway, uh, this is more introductory-level stuff, and then uh, the next book will be 201. All right. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19 tonight. Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler 
And the question, what does it mean to have eternal life? Now I'm going to read verses 16 through 22. And then I'll pause for a brief prayer and then we'll dig right in. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And behold, one came unto him and said, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, open our eyes tonight, we pray, that we might behold wondrous things from your word, that we might be challenged and stirred as born-again believers to prepare ourselves for your coming kingdom. We look forward to the privilege and the prospect of ruling together with you. The Lord, we know we need to prepare, and I pray that we would, even through this conference and the messages that are delivered by all these good speakers, I just pray, Lord, that you would help to prepare us to meet you one day and hear well done. We commit this message to you now. I ask that you would fill me and use me for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From my study of the scriptures, I do not believe the focus of the Synoptic Gospels is soteriological. The focus in the Synoptic Gospels, I believe, is on the Gospel of the Kingdom rather than the Gospel of Grace by faith alone. John's Gospel I see as primarily evangelistic, in my opinion. However, most of the evangelical world does not share my position, and you know that. It may be our position. I'm not going to speak for you, but it could be that's your position as well, that the synoptics are mainly dealing with matters of sanctification and reward, and the Gospel of John is mainly evangelistic. But the evangelical world doesn't see it that way. They, they tend to see the Gospel of salvation from eternal condemnation everywhere in the New Testament, whereas I tend to see sanctification and reward in most places, and Brother John mentioned something to that effect last night. I would agree with that. The evangelical realm tends to see the salvation of the Spirit in virtually every verse, but I tend to see the salvation of the soul. And so the tendency in evangelicalism is to do something called gospelizing. Now you say, what is gospelizing? Well, this is my term. I'll give you my definition. Gospelizing is superimposing a soteriological hermeneutic, that's a salvation from eternal condemnation interpretation, on the scripture passages that are actually mystological. And I say, what's mystological? Well, first of all, I give credit to Marty, who I think coined that term, mystological, and he's here in the audience. Thank you, Marty, for that. That is so helpful. Now we need one for sanctification. That, that would help as well. But 
we have soteriological, we now have mystological. But mystological comes from the Greek word mystos, dealing with matters of reward. What do I mean by gospelizing, or how do they do this? What is their tendency here? Well, the tendency to gospelize is driven by theological considerations rather than exegetical considerations. You know what it means to do exegesis, that is, to read out of the passage. But uh, what is happening today is people are reading into the passage their theological paradigm that they hold to. And that will result in an entirely different interpretation of Scripture. But this is widespread. This is, I believe, the legacy of the Reformation. The Re Reformation uh, men had the propensity to synthesize justification and sanctification. In other words, to wrap the two together so that they must go together. In other words, a person who is justified is automatically being sanctified. And we realize, uh, not necessarily. A person who's justified may not be sanctified because they may not be cooperating with God in the process. They may be resisting it through some fleshliness of their own. Well, this obviously results in an incorrect hermeneutic, and it leads to inconsistencies in interpretation. So this is a problem today, widespread in evangelicalism. In fact, multitudes of Bible preachers and teachers say uh, that this man here in our text, the rich man, wants to know how to be saved from eternal condemnation. But he thinks that salvation is by keeping the law, and to that end, he seeks to justify his goodness before Jesus and he wants to know what else he needs to do to receive eternal life from hell, salvation from hell. Jesus essentially tells the ruler that perfection is needed for salvation. He must completely obey the law. But the ruler is obviously not perfect because he's unwilling to keep the whole law, for he is unwilling to sell his goods and give them to the poor, which implies that he's covetous, he's greedy, he's breaking the Tenth Commandment. That's a view of this passage that I disagree with, but is very widespread. Thus, those who hold to this view would say that the point of Christ's dialogue with the man is to demonstrate he cannot keep the law, he is a failure to keep the law, and therefore that he needs to admit his total depravity, and therefore his desperate need for Christ's imputed righteousness if he would possess eternal life in heaven one day. Because the man was not willing to part with his riches, he went away lost and eternally condemned to hell. That is the standard interpretation of this text, with which I totally disagree. John MacArthur, as you know, holds a Lordship Salvation position. And here's what he says about the rich young ruler. He gospelizes this text. We're not surprised. He said, our Lord gave this man a test. He had to make a choice between Christ and his possessions and sin, and he failed the test. No matter what he may have believed, because he was unwilling to forsake all, he could not be a disciple of Christ. And what MacArthur means by being a disciple of Christ is being saved from eternal condemnation. He equates discipleship with salvation from hell. Salvation, he says, is for those who are willing to forsake everything. Well, that's the position of lordship salvation. It comes right out of his New Testament commentary on Matthew. 
D.A. Carson, another Lordship Salvation advocate. Here's what he says. This young man had a divided heart. What Jesus everywhere demands as a condition for eternal life is absolute radical discipleship. This entails the surrender of self. Again, a horrible understanding of this text. And there are a whole slew of books out there today. Uh, this is very popular now, and it's gaining steam. Now, I'm going to throw in a non-lordship advocate. Okay, we say we're non-lordship. But these guys still are not where we are with respect to interpreting this text. So we have here H.A. Ironside from yesteryear. And he says, and I quote, the question involves one's ability to earn eternal life by doing. This young man had not yet learned his own utter sinfulness and absolute helplessness. Christ's declaration to keep the commandments was designed to show the man his inability to obtain life on that ground. Now what he's saying here is that this man was looking for salvation from hell, but... In all fairness, H.A. Ironside was not a lordship salvation guy. And because we're in Tennessee, I just thought I'd throw in the late John R. Rice. Quote, he wanted to be saved by his own goodness. He preferred salvation by works instead of salvation by grace. Jesus is using the law for conviction to show the young man his need of Christ. I believe these men have interpreted incorrectly. For they have based their interpretation on wrong assumptions and have completely missed the point. In fact, I would go so far as to say that these views are forced upon the passage by those who cannot imagine Jesus is talking to a believer about inheriting the kingdom. Matters of reward. Well, how then do we rightly divide this parable? How do we make sense of this man's question? Well, I believe the rich young ruler's question, to use Marty's term, is mystological, that is, relating to matters of reward, not soteriological, relating to matters of salvation from hell. He is asking about how to have inheritance in the coming kingdom and not salvation from eternal condemnation. Now, I'd like to give you three evidences to consider tonight. Number one, the duality of eternal life, and these will be the points of my message this evening if you're taking notes. Number two, the synonyms for eternal life. And number three, the means of obtaining eternal life. And as I'm using the words eternal life here, particularly in point number three, I'm referring to the reward of eternal life. Well, let's start with number one, the duality of eternal life. When you see the term eternal life or everlasting life in the scriptures, you should automatically ask yourself this question. Is this referring to the gift of eternal life, which is by faith alone? Or is this referring to the reward of eternal life, which is according to works? What does the context dictate? Well, I'm going to illustrate this using two boxes. And let me just put in this uh, important credit where credit is due. Uh, I got this idea from one of Marty's seminars that I heard him do up in North Carolina. 
and uh, I've adapted it for my purposes. It's different than what Marty did, but he gave me the seed thought, and I appreciate that, Marty. The gift of eternal life, of course, is by faith alone. But we now know that eternal life is dualistic. And I'm going to suggest, therefore, that eternal life has two degrees or two aspects. One is the gift, and two is the reward. Of course, a person cannot have the reward of eternal life unless they first have the gift of eternal life. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from hell and receive eternal life as a gift. And then you are a prospect, a candidate uh, for the reward if you continue faithful unto the Lord. The first degree of eternal life is the gift. And we would all say, we would all agree that it is based on faith alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We could speak volumes on that, but we'll pass that by for tonight. It is not of works on our part, but entirely through his grace. Some of the verses we would typically quote, John 3.16, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3.5, and typically Romans 6.23. Now I want to put in this parenthesis, Brother John has some unique thoughts on Romans 6.23. And he told us this morning he's been kind of lonely after his sessions. So after the service tonight, if you're curious about this, I want you to gang up on John and ask him his views on Romans 6.23. It'll provoke you. Well, it'll provoke you to something. <clears throat> Hopefully to think and not pop him in the nose, right? <laughs> we love John. Appreciate his thought-provoking sessions. Of course, this... Eternal life is accompanied by justification. And we know that justification occurs at the point of salvation from hell when God declares the sinner righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. What a privilege and what an honor that is. We sometimes refer to it as imputed righteousness. I would suggest that this transaction occurs in the realm of our spirit when we are saved. And though it's not on the slide here, of course we all realize that the Holy Spirit takes up residence within our spirit from that point forward. And he becomes our provision for living righteously as saints of God. This is the first degree of eternal life. You all know this. This is second nature to you. You are well versed and well taught in these things. But some are not as well taught in the second degree or second aspect of eternal life and that is the reward of eternal life while the gift of eternal life is based entirely on faith the reward of eternal life is according to works and again we could speak uh, volumes on that but we won't tonight except to say this please don't misunderstand this statement that the reward of eternal life is according to works I am not in any way implying that these are flesh-dependent works. Flesh dependence is never rewarded. You know, you can go to church three times a week. You can teach a Sunday school class. You can keep super busy for God, so to speak, and still not be rewarded at the judgment seat. And the reason is because you're doing it all in the strength of your own flesh. You're not depending upon the Holy Spirit who lives within you to enable you with the power to do what God wants you to do. So while we frequently say, because it's true, that reward is according to works, it is spirit-dependent works that he does through us. It is not depending on our own strength. What did the songwriter say? The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your home. 
So these are works that are pleasing to the Lord. This is fruit bearing, producing complete dependence on the Spirit. But this degree of eternal life is based on works. Faith-dependent works, but based on works. And some passages that we recognize here. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Matthew 6.19 and 20, Galatians 6.7 and 8, and 1 Timothy 6.12. Now I highlighted Galatians 6.7 and 8 uh, because I'd like to quote that for you. You're familiar with it. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Well, what's the life everlasting in that verse? See, your antenna should go up and say, is that the gift of eternal life or is that the reward of eternal life? Well, obviously, in that context, Paul is writing to believers and so he's talking about the reward of eternal life. In fact, right there in the verses, he that soweth to the flesh or soweth to the spirit, this involves works, doing something. And you don't do something to get saved. You simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but you do something with respect to your sanctification. And that is you depend on the Holy Spirit and do things that God tells you to do in the scriptures by obeying him and so on. So this, obviously, Galatians 6, 7, and 8, when it talks about life everlasting, is the reward of eternal life. So if you live according to the Spirit, you will be rewarded at the judgment seat. That's right. And this type of eternal life is accompanied by progressive sanctification. We could say discipleship. Sanctification, of course, is the lifelong process of being set apart from sin. And being set apart to God as choices are made by each one of us to obey him, to serve him in faithfulness, to endure our sufferings as Jesus suffered, and so on. And I will put this parenthesis in. Uh, not everyone is submitting to progressive sanctification in their lives. It's not automatic. And we'll see that throughout the session tonight. Finally, I would suggest that the reward of eternal life occurs in the realm of the soul. Uh, justification occurs instantaneously in the realm of our spirit, but sanctification occurs over time in the realm of our soul. That's my understanding. And it's to the extent that a child of God is following Christ in discipleship. Sometimes I refer to progressive sanctification or discipleship as soul salvation. As in James 1.21, you're familiar with that verse, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. That verse has nothing to do with the salvation of your spirit from condemnation. James is writing to believers about matters of sanctification. And you already know that. Thus it should not surprise you that if eternal life has two degrees, then so does salvation. Salvation of the spirit, salvation of the soul. I deal with all these things in my first book, by the way. So, as you are attempting to determine what degree of eternal life is being used in a particular text, you should also be uh, attempting to determine what degree or aspect of salvation is being used in different texts. And as a rule of thumb, I typically have discovered 
that when salvation is being referred to in the scriptures in the past tense, it refers to salvation from, from condemnation, but it's when it's referred to in a future sense, it's referring to the reward of eternal life, or salvation of the soul unto reward. Additional examples of soul salvation could be found in Hebrews 10, 39, Matthew 16, verses 24 through 28. Now, one important thing to understand about progressive sanctification, as I said earlier, it's not automatic. Perhaps I could put it this way. While all saints have been justified positionally and therefore stand positionally as children of God, not all saints are being progressively or experientially sanctified, for they're not paying the price of discipleship. And therefore, not all saints are joint heirs with Christ. There are conditions for being a joint heir with Christ. And generally speaking, the conditions are obedience and faithfulness amid suffering. Those who meet the qualifications will hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That's the reward of eternal life, the second degree of eternal life, which is dependent on soul salvation, the second degree of salvation. Now, this is all foundational, but it's critical to understanding the rich young ruler. Now, using our boxes for illustration purposes, let's apply the duality of eternal life in various scenarios. This might help you to think about this. What does eternal life look like for carnal Christians? People who are truly saved from hell, but they're not living for the Lord. Well, I would suggest it looks like this. They have the gift of eternal life, but no reward. Unless their life changes, reward will be forfeited. There will be no inheritance. All right, what does eternal life look like for spiritual Christians? Those who are genuinely spiritual, walking with the Lord. Well, they not only have the gift of eternal life, but they possess the reward of eternal life, or will possess it at the judgment seat. So that's what a spiritual saint would look like. Now let's turn the tables a little bit. What does eternal life look like according to traditional non-Calvinists? And this is what I was before I entered into an understanding of the word of the kingdom. I was non-Calvinistic, but I was a traditional dispensationalist. And uh, here's the way I understood gift and reward as bound together, inseparable. In other words, when I got saved, I automatically received all the blessings of the eternal realm. The reward automatically goes with the gift of eternal life. They're inseparable. You can't have one without the other, regardless of one's spiritual condition, they would say. In other words, all believers are expected to inherit the kingdom and rule with Jesus. All believers are expected to be crowned in some degree. All will be glorified. These are the blessings of salvation to be enjoyed by all saints, they would say, and all will be rewarded. This view looks at the judgment seat primarily as an award ceremony. Nothing negative. And a person might have a few moments of, oh, I wish I'd have done better for Christ, but then everything's hunky-dory after that. <laughs> 
Well, I held to this position for many years because it's what I was taught, what I grew up with, what I heard in Bible college, seminary. <laughs> now, here's another one I want you to think about. Here's eternal life as viewed by traditional non-Calvinists. Oh, I already said this. They're inseparable. But let's go to the next one. Eternal life is viewed by traditional Calvinists. How do they view the gift and the reward? Well, they view them as being bound together too, but they sort of flip them around. They're inseparable. They're in reverse order. You see, those who hold to the Calvinist doctrine of perseverance... They say that, yes, eternal life is by faith alone. However, they would also say that those who don't act like Christians are not truly saved. Thus, what they do is they slip in sanctification, matters of discipleship or the reward of eternal life, underneath as the foundation for the gift. In other words, everything rises and falls on behavior. And because of that... Calvinists live in perpetual doubt as to their salvation. Incidentally, Arminianism is essentially built on the same model. You know, I used to think Calvinism's over here and Arminianism's over here, but now I realize, no, they meet around the back of the barn. They come, they're cut from the same mold. <laughs> Sadly, many dispensationalists who claim not to hold the Calvinist perseverance doctrine have unwittingly embraced it. And I hear it taught and preached in many places where those preachers and teachers would say, I'm not a Calvinist. Oh, yes, you are. Listen to your own doctrine, and I put my finger on it. Oh, I'm not a Calvinist. <laughs> now, let's take all that we've learned about the duality of eternal life, and let's apply it to the rich young ruler. What was he seeking after? Well, in the context, he's not asking how to be saved and possess the gift of eternal life. Here's what he's looking for. He's asking how to have the reward of eternal life. He wants life in the kingdom age to come. This man had apparently heard Jesus preach, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Maybe you heard John the Baptist. By the way, that is not a soteriological message. I think John pointed that out earlier, very astutely. Jesus is essentially urging the nation of Israel with that message to repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand to get right with Jehovah God. You're not living right, people. And if you do, you will have the prospect, the privilege of ruling with Jesus in the heavenly new Jerusalem, the headquarters of the messianic kingdom. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the ruler desires to do just that. He wants to rule with Jesus in the heavenly kingdom. And I would also throw this in. He would know some Old Testament truth, wouldn't you say? And do you know that only one time in the Old Testament is eternal life or everlasting life mentioned? I think John mentioned that as well in his session. And here it is, Daniel 12, 2 and 3. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. I don't have the time to go into it, but this everlasting life here is not referring to salvation from condemnation, uh, salvation from hell. This is the reward of everlasting life, as juxtaposed with 
everlasting contempt, shame. So the rich young ruler knew this. <laughs> this is in his psyche. This is in his mind. He knows what's in the prophecy of Daniel. He wants to rule with Jesus in his heavenly kingdom. All right, we took a lot of time with point one because it was so foundational, but now we transition to point two, and I think we can move a bit quicker. We have considered number one, as you see it there, the duality of eternal life. Now number two, let's look at synonyms for eternal life, and I'm referring to the reward of eternal life. There are several different terms in our text here that are referring to the same thing. That's why I call them synonyms. And I've underlined them all in my Bible. I would encourage you to do the same if you mark in your Bibles. I do encourage you to mark in your Bibles. And you have it for later on to remember. Let me give you several synonyms. Number one, have eternal life. Look at verse number 16, chapter 19, verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What is the rich young ruler asking? Well, the word have can mean to obtain, but it can also mean to hold on to something already obtained. 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. Uh, let me go ahead and give that verse to you. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Did you notice that phrase there? Paul says to Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. Now, wait a minute. Timothy's already saved. Saved from hell. Why does Paul tell him to lay hold on eternal life? He already possesses the gift of eternal life. Well, the point is that Paul is focusing not on the first degree of eternal life, the free gift of God by faith alone, but rather the second degree of eternal life, a reward to be obtained by faithfulness. And certainly that fits with the previous verse. Thou, O man of God, flee these things. Live righteously. Don't live in your, according to your flesh. Lay hold on eternal life. Go after that reward of eternal life. And I believe that's exactly what the rich young ruler is asking for. Because have eternal life, have, the word have, can mean to hold on to something already obtained. And I believe that's what it's referring to in this passage. There's a second synonym in verse 17. And he saith unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, that's a synonym for the reward of eternal life there in verse number 17. Enter into life. The entire sentence says, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. God promised life, vibrancy of spiritual life for obedience. Even in the Old Testament, this man would have known the Old Testament passage, Leviticus 18 and verse 5. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Do you know keeping the law never saved anybody? But obeying the law as a saved person brings vibrancy of spiritual life. That's true for you as well. True in an Old Testament sense also. And that principle is corroborated in the New Testament as well. Look at Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. 
For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed, indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Hey, there's vibrancy of life when you're walking with the Lord. When you're living according to your flesh, there's deadness. There's not life, vibrancy. Obeying God brings vibrancy. Earlier we quoted Galatians 6 and verse 8. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. Jesus is showing the rich young ruler how to have vibrancy of spiritual life, which is the qualification for inheriting the kingdom, ruling with Jesus. Incidentally, one of the rewards for overcomers is found in James chapter 1 and verse 12, the crown of life, which some will receive at the judgment seat. You know, I ask myself, if all saints possess eternal life, and we do, then why will some be given a crown of life? Well, it's a reward. Life in the second degree, the reward of eternal life. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, to the church at Smyrna, we're told... Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. The same thing, a reward for faithfulness, eternal life in the second degree. So I would submit to you that entering eternal life is a synonym for vibrancy of spiritual life now that leads to reward at the Bema. Our third synonym, be perfect. Look at verse number 21. Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell thou hast, give to the poor, thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Perfection, we know, is not a justification term. It's a sanctification term. When I say justification, I'm using it in the sense of at the point of salvation. I realize there is a practical justification referred to in James 2. I'm not using it in that sense of the word. Perfection is not a term relating to uh, salvation from hell or soteriology. It's a sanctification term. Perfection is the qualification for being rewarded at the judgment seat, resulting in inheriting the kingdom. And of course, the word perfect in the Greek uh, is teleos. It's completion of a goal. It's akin to the word used by Jesus on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. As saints were commanded to be perfect, as our Father in heaven is perfect. I spoke to that the other day. Many of the speakers have referred to that. It's not sinlessness, but it's completing the sanctification path, the path of discipleship that God has intended for you. Paul said in Colossians 1.28 that he wanted to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. I believe Brother Carl referred to that verse last night. In other words, Paul wanted every member of the church at Colossae to be able to stand before Jesus at the judgment seat, complete in sanctification, perfect, mature, having gone all the way to the goal, so they could all be rewarded. In Matthew 19 here, if the rich young ruler will sell everything and give to the poor, he will be considered complete in his sanctification. He will be worthy of the second degree of eternal life, reward, inheritance in the kingdom. Look at the fourth synonym. Have treasure in heaven. It's there in the same verse. Go and sell thou hast, verse 21, give to the poor, thou shalt have treasure in heaven. In Matthew 6, Verses 19 and 20, you know the verse. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. But 
Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where those things won't corrupt. Another synonym, the kingdom of heaven. Now, in order to see this one, I need you to go with me to verse 13. This precedes the rich young ruler passage. Look at verse 13. Then were there brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, allow little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of the heavens. And then down to verse number 23, which is right after the rich young ruler passage, Jesus says to his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So we find here the fifth synonym for the reward of eternal life, and it's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, as I've said to you uh, already in a previous session, is literally translated from the Greek, the kingdom of the heavens. And I believe it refers to the ruling realm of the millennial kingdom, the heavenly new Jerusalem. And that is the realm from which Jesus will rule over uh, the millennial earth. And that is the realm in which his faithful ones will be together with him as his bride and co-regent. All others will be in the darkness outside. So the kingdom of the heavens is a term relating to the reward of eternal life. That is, if you have access to that realm, then you have been rewarded. So I believe what Jesus is saying here in the broader context is that for one to inherit the kingdom, he has to be like little children. You ever wonder about that? We sometimes refer to the simple faith of a child, but I don't necessarily think that's the point here. Little children are the lowest in status on earth from this standpoint they have to submit to authority and they have no choice but to be humble they're dependent on other people you know you take a little infant that infant cannot feed itself it cannot re-diaper itself I, I knew a man that called called that changing its filter you know cannot diaper itself cannot feed itself they're dependent on others and Jesus says, if you want to inherit the kingdom of the heavens, you need to be like that. You need to be dependent on God. Ooh. Well, that drives it home. Mm. I have to depend on the Lord, not dependent on myself. I have to be like a little child. I have to be helpless. Say, Lord, I can't do it. Ah, but you can. I will work together with you to do whatever you want to do in my life. Beautiful imagery. And the kingdom of heaven, as I already said, is the heavenly ruling realm, the messianic kingdom, where Christ will rule together with his bride. It's the privilege given to those who come as little children and to forsake all and follow Jesus. It's a synonym for having eternal life. And Jesus shares the phrase again in verse number 24. Now look at verse 24. Again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I must tell you up front, I do not, I do not, I do not hold to the sewing needle view. I do not believe it fits the context at all. I hold to the eye of the needle as being a small, man-sized opening in the city gates where people would enter or exit the city late at night 
after the massive city gates were closed for the night. I have been in Israel, I have been in Jordan, I have been in Lebanon, in that region, in many of the city gates, particularly in Israel, in the, the walls of Jerusalem, uh, you can see doors like this. And there are in other places in the Middle East as well. And these little gates are known as the Eye of the Needle. In fact, our scholarly guide, who was Jewish himself, pointed this out, and he was a secular man, because they were so small relative to the gates of the massive city walls. They were known as the Eye of the Needle. They were designed for people, though, not for animals. So that late at night, they could close the big gates to the city, you know, to keep out enemies. But people who arrived late could still come into the city for protection at night. Now, if they wanted to get their camel through the door, they could. But I've got to tell you, it was a painstaking process. I have been on camels twice in my life. Has anyone here ever been on a camel? Okay, a couple of people around, scattered around the room. I think I counted three. Well, do you all remember the Mars rover when that was a big deal way back? It was on television, science channels covered it. And I remember when I saw the Mars rover on a science channel, when it got up, remember it landed on Mars and it got up and it had these legs that kind of went, you know, the, the Mars rover started this way and then it went this way and finally, whoop, that's what camels do. When I was on a camel, I almost got bucked off the thing just by the thing standing up because the guide failed to tell me to hold onto the horn on the saddle. They usually put saddles on for unsuspecting tourists like me, people who don't know better, and they tell you to hold onto the horn of the saddle. Well, this guide forgot to tell me. And when that camel got up like the Mars rover, first it went, I went back like this, and then I went forward like this, and I went, whoa, I nearly went off the camel twice. Thankfully, I grabbed onto that horn and stayed on. I did see a person fall off. Because the camel, you know, literally those long, lanky legs have to stand up. And it gets up just like the Mars rover. Now, imagining that in reverse. Collapses down. Camels do collapse down for resting purposes. And the guide, I've seen this happen. I've not seen them go through the eye of a needle. But I've seen a guide coax a camel to move up. In other words, the camel was in the wrong spot. He needed it to move over here. So while the camel was down on the ground, completely collapsed, the guide was able to move the camel several feet over this way. And that was an interesting, laborious process. But it happens. It can be done. Now, I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, rich man, if you want to enter into the kingdom of the heavens, you got to strip off your baggage. Like this camel who needs to go into the eye of the needle to get into the city at nighttime, the only way that camel's getting through that door is for that man who owns the camel, that possessor of the camel, to strip off everything and to coax that camel and to get that camel to scoot through that narrow doorway. Perhaps it's like Matthew 7.13 where Jesus told us to enter in at the straight gate and follow the narrow hemmed in way it's tight and it's referring to save people living the sanctified life it's not referring to 
going to heaven, getting on the pathway, going to heaven. Pilgrim's Progress, I think, picks up on that theme. No, it's referring to saved people living a holy life. It's hemmed in. It's difficult. You're going to face struggles and hardships and trials and persecutions, and you have to endure them faithfully. Stay on that narrow path. Well, that camel getting through the doorway is kind of like that. So that prompts these disciples who are sitting nearby to say, wow, <laughs> this is a big deal. Who then can be saved? And again, the context is not from eternal condemnation. In the context of Daniel 12 and their psyche of Leviticus 18, they're thinking, who then can inherit the kingdom of the heavens? And that brings us to our sixth synonym. Verse 25, who then can be saved? Not first degree, gift of eternal life. Second degree, reward of eternal life. Jesus comforts his disciples with verse 26. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I love that. Jesus, I believe here, is saying that the only way a rich man can be rewarded in the age to come is by going through the struggle of forsaking his riches and following Christ. He needs to get on that narrow road. He needs to scoot through that little doorway. He needs to get going and strip off anything that stands in the way. Well, that makes a lot of sense in this context. We find then a seventh synonym in verses 27 through 30. Then answered Peter, <coughs> excuse me, and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Jesus said unto them, Verily I say to you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. There's our synonym, inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The disciples want to know, what are we going to get as a reward? We followed you. Now, it's important to remember that this question is being said in the context of the rich young ruler and having eternal life. So what's Christ's answer? It's all about reward. In verse 28, he tells them that in the regeneration, that's the messianic restoration, the millennial kingdom, they will rule on thrones. Then in verse 29, he says that anyone who forsakes, that is, lays aside or yields up everything on earth, will inherit everlasting life, the reward of eternal life. And did not Peter say something similar? 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11, Work for the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, what things? Add to your faith virtue. Virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, temperance, patience, patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. If you do these things, you'll never fall. For so an entrance, <coughs> excuse me, shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glorious to think about. Now we have one more point, and this is the quickest of all. Number one, we've seen the duality of eternal life. Number two, we've seen the synonyms for eternal life. This one's real fast. Number three, the means of obtaining eternal life. How does one become rewarded in the age to come? Well, I'm just going to summarize very briefly. Number one, verse 14, by coming as a little child, humble and dependent on God. Number two, by obeying the Lord completely. 
Number three, by laying up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Number four, by following Jesus and taking up your cross. Number five, I believe this one applies to all Americans who are rich, by the way, by stripping off all baggage and striving to win the prize. And number six, in verse 29, by forsaking all. And all of these, I put a verse in front of them because they all tie right to the passage. Now, folks, stop with me and think. Here's the bottom line. If Jesus is teaching the rich young ruler the way to be saved from eternal condemnation, in this whole context, then Jesus is teaching salvation by works. Now, of course, Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. We know better than that. So we have two interpretation options to walk away from this message tonight. Option one. You can take the majority position in evangelicalism. You can gospelize this text. You can insist that it's talking about salvation from hell. Or number two, and I believe this is the right option, you can take the position that this man is saved. He's already a believer. And he's desiring eternal inheritance in the kingdom of the heavens. He wants to be rewarded. And to that end, Jesus points him to the high cost of discipleship. Now, the decision is yours because you have to make the same choice. You say, well, I'm glad I'm not rich. <laughs> yes, you are. You might think of yourself as poor, but I've been to some third world countries, and I've got to tell you, virtually all Americans are rich. Even the poorest in our land are rich. I've been to Cambodia, out in the jungles. People are dirt poor. They have nothing. You're rich. Look at all the comforts we have. So here's what I'm going to suggest to you. You don't have to be a millionaire for this passage to apply to you. This passage applies to all Americans. And all American Christians should put up their antenna and say, if I want to inherit the kingdom of the heavens, I can't have any attachment to the things of this earth, to my possessions, to my wealth, to all the comforts we have in America doesn't mean you need to go and live in a cave. It simply means that that's not what you care about. That's not what you live for. You're not here to accumulate lots of stuff. You're here to live for God. And those things are mere tools to help you. But you're not attached. But you know, I fear, I don't want to say most, because I don't know that that's the case, but multitudes of saved people, I fear in our churches, if they stood at the judgment seat right now, I can just imagine Jesus saying to them, didn't you read the rich young ruler passage? A wicked and slothful servant. You cared about the things of earth. You didn't care about the things of eternity. You didn't lay up treasures for heaven. I'm sorry, you'll have to be in the darkness outside. I want to hear, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, and I will make thee ruler over many cities or many things. You do too. So may we forsake all and follow him. That's bound for Thank you, Lord, for your precious word. Oh, it's so clear. May we live it out for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.